The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Season 3 of Students of Mind, the podcast that's all about opening up and normalizing discussions about mental health in ways that anyone can comprehend. In the first two seasons, we sat down with mental health experts and survivors to give you a full circle picture of each topic. In this new season, we will continue to explore the world of mental health through the insights of experts, healers, and individuals with lived experience. From alternative healing modalities to living with multiple illnesses, this season we will cover a wide range of topics with the help of a diverse selection of guests. My name is Jade, and for today's episode, I'm sitting down with registered dietitian and author Robin Goldberg to talk about her book, The Eating Disorder Trap. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Good morning, Robin. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for the invite, Jade. It's great to be here. I'm so excited for our conversation to get into your book and just the work that you do. Um, But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. So my name is Robin Goldberg. I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor through IADEP, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. I've been in private practice for 26 years, and I see kids, teens, tweens, adults, all bodies, all ages, all genders with medical issues, eating disorders, and body image issues. Great. And um, 
you're based in uh, Beverly Hills. Yeah, so I was in Beverly Hills for many, many years, and now I'm outside of UCLA. So okay, yes, great, not too far. Um, great. So this goes right into my first question. Um, what inspired you to work in the field of eating disorders? Well, what inspired me, or what led me, I, th- I would say, are somewhat different. I was a college tennis player. And I had three roommates, all with bulimia nervosa, and I never knew anything about eating disorders, and I would actually fall asleep at night to them purging. And that was my exposure, my first introduction to what an eating disorder is, especially when one of them started to share her, quote unquote, her secret with me. Um, Fast forward later, I worked at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. I was in cardiology and then in gastroenterology for the first five years of my career. And I remember the chief clinical dietitian had asked um, the other floor dietitians who was interested in seeing this patient that had an eating disorder. So I always like to say that I learned about eating disorders backwards because back at that time, you know, I did not know how to counsel clients. You know, we're not trained doing that as clinicians starting out. So I actually, like any entry-level dietitian, we know a lot about what's called enteral and parenteral nutrition, tube feedings and TPN and all this kind of stuff. And this specific patient was on a tube feeding tied down with restraints. I feel like that's very archaic. I mean, we're going back 27 years, so a long time. And that was my first exposure and introduction to someone at that acuteness and was regularly in the medical center. And I thought, you know, looking back down the road here years later, I was like, this was not an appropriate place for this patient to be. And this is, of course, where her primary doctor was. And I'm assuming he did not know about residential or medical stabilization treatment programs, but I thought, you know what, I want to be able to learn how to help these patients and be able to make a difference in their lives and not realizing like most dietitians, I mean, anyone that walks into our door, if they are quote unquote, seeking weight loss, or they're wanting to feel better in their body, chances are they may have a difficult relationship with food. It's not always about being misinformed about the nutrition sources. So I thought it would be necessary to just kind of immerse myself. I had um, went to Carolyn Costin and Francie White. Anita Johnson used to run these workshops in Santa Barbara. And I went to be able to address not only my biases, my relationship. And this was how the whole world happened for me. That's so interesting. And and that's a, a very... Uh, almost traumatic experience that you experienced with your roommates in college, but it's it's so cool that it led to you doing this work. Um, and yeah, it's just so cool that you were able to use that experience and turn it into something positive. Um, so I you describe yourself as a weight-inclusive dietitian. Can you talk about what that means and like if that's been something that's always been a part of your work? Great question, Jade. So I, so let me backtrack. When I started my career, it was when the first edition of Intuitive Eating came out. 
And I always knew putting people on diets, providing rules, saying you should eat this, you shouldn't eat that, I knew was not a way to help someone succeed. It would lead them to fail again. So I was always an outcast, I would say, because I was working in the medical center and I would be including in my chart notes, like, how did that feel in your body after someone's having a heart attack? And I remember being called into the chief clinical dietitian's office countless times, basically being confronted, like, what are these questions in your notes? Basically, it was inappropriate to them. So I knew there was an alternative way, a better way. Um, you know, I was not familiar with health at every size. I mean, truthfully, I'm not even sure if it was on, on the radar. So I, I was aware of being able to work on language was very, very important in helping a client succeed as opposed to here we are again. So with being weight inclusive, I would say I've always been, but I'm not perfect. I have made mistakes in my career. And I would say my language has been fine-tuned over two decades. So I've I've been proud to brand myself as being a weight inclusive registered dietitian because I know that you can live in any body shape or size and that doesn't determine if you have a difficulty around food it doesn't define a person's relationship to food in their body it doesn't represent if they have an eating disorder so i've always been i would say a salmon swimming upstream and there's a lot more salmon swimming upstream since i've started my career but I find I spend a lot of time, Jade, educating other healthcare providers and what that looks like. And I can even use, you know, myself as an example. Like I got into my profession based on my family history of heart disease and high cholesterol. My dad was alive at the time, which is how I got into the cardiac space. And being told at 13, I have high cholesterol and seeing my brother go on a statin at 21 and, you know, we, we live in smaller bodies. I have been active my whole life. And I actually, since you and I have been in touch, I actually just went through a very invasive heart test to determine soft and hard plaque buildup. I mean, I've, and it's like someone could say like, oh yeah, you don't look, I mean, I hear this from providers. Oh yeah. You don't look up like you have I'm like, you know what? People with thin privilege have the same biases as people in larger bodies. I think it's like you can't change your genetics. And I have many clients that live in larger bodies that I wish my labs looked like theirs. So, you know, to answer your question about like what is weight inclusive, really just in a nutshell, not being able to look at someone and assume that they have a problem or that they don't take care of themselves or that they're, you know, living on fast food. Maybe that's all they have access to. Maybe that's all they can afford. But I think it's, it's not creating assumptions. And that's what I do with my practice. I like to hear each client's story and allow them to share where they're at because we come in all different shapes and sizes and you wouldn't ask, you know, a Chihuahua to look like a Great Dane. Yeah, 
I love that. I think I especially what you said about like working on the language. I think that's so important. Um, I, I just know as someone in recovery, like the language was unlearning of diet culture language was a big part of my recovery and I just love that that's a component of what you do as well and like your process of becoming weight inclusive I love that um thank you I think it's important because there's so many I would say of the quote-unquote um people that are contributing to the problem and I don't want my clients to drink another glass of Kool-Aid. Yeah. Sometimes it's very seductive, of course, because what we see in media and social media, I mean, it's very inviting and very convincing. And if you have 8 trillion followers, you too can be very convincing. So, And I feel like it's like, it's just so normalized. Um, and I, I feel like being weight inclusive or even just being in the recovery mindset is like a radical act in the current society. It it is because it's not following the leader that I have to eat quote unquote clean. When clients say that to me, I would say, wash your food underwater. Your food will be clean. It's, it's unfortunately a trend that's out of control on so many fronts where it starts from any pursuit to be in a smaller body to anti-aging. I mean, as you and I are discussing, I mean, we both live in Los Angeles. I grew up here. So I've seen where it's like people will do what they can to preserve their youth. And yeah, we all change. We all develop cellulite. We all get gray hair. We all have circles under our, this is just a part of aging. It's not like, we can be a movie land wax museum character be frozen in time. (laughs) And I think it's harder in larger cities where the entertainment industry just feeds off of that versus if we were in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. Um, I'm loving this conversation already. Um, I want to shift into your book, The Eating Disorder Trap, um, and first kind of just talk about what led to you or inspired you to write the book. Thank you. I had decided, Jay, if I was ever going to write a book, I wanted to write something that was different than what already existed in the field. And what I mean by that is I wanted a book that could be inclusive to all and really written in a language that anyone could understand that you didn't have to be a provider. So a person's family could read it. The identified patient could read it. Their nurse could read it. Their soccer coach, their priest, anyone. So that was the first thing. And then, so growing up with a brother that was obsessed with comic books, I always felt like the illustrations had a unique way in conveying a point. So I thought like, oh, it would be cool to be able to have a book since this is really written in a very basic manner that there could be illustrations that could be a, you know, a twist on words, add some humor, but then hit hard into a serious topic. So I was like, that hasn't 
been in the field and I'd like to do that. And then the other thing I feel like that there was a deficit of is, and I've still been learning over a number of years is really understanding terminology and non-binary individuals. So I'd asked a colleague of mine to go through the manuscript to make sure I had appropriate gender affirming pronouns. And it was funny because Sage is, is their name had a whole other level. And I was like, listen, I don't think people want to get into like everything about the vagina. I mean, it was like a whole other, I'm like a whole other book we could have written. I was like, I just want to keep it to the basics. So when someone is reading it too. So I felt like, well, that would be great to include because I haven't seen a book that had all these aspects. So for me, Jade, I really thought I'd like to have a book that was like, I don't know if you know what cliff notes are. I know it's called something else now. Okay. So when I was a kid, cliff notes were like, okay, you're reading Huckleberry Finn. Oh, let me get the cliff notes version so I can kind of get some guidance and assistance. So not that one will be an expert on eating disorders after, but as one colleague said to me, it's like, I have an, an, a, a mini version of an encyclopedia. And to me, it's like cliff notes style. And that was really what I wanted to embrace. And then the last thing was I thought, well, if I could include colleagues that are well-known in the field, like that will provide more credibility, like four well-known eating disorder physicians and two well-known eating disorder uh, therapists, that would just add more to it. So that was the birth of how the eating disorder trap came about. And it was a lot of, I always say a lot of layers to my onion that had to get reformulated time and time again but that was what I thought okay if I want to do it and people thought like oh it's crazy you're putting so much in one book and I was like it's like a build your own sandwich I just want to keep on going and so that was how that evolved yeah no it's um I'm about halfway through it and it's there is so much information in it but it's like digestible because of the language you use and yeah, like I was saying before we started, this is something that I feel like I could give to family to get like, like you're saying, like a Cliff Notes version of like eating disorders 101 type of thing. So yeah, it's been so great to read it. And as a person in recovery, it's also been great to read to like, be reminded of all of these messages that I've gotten that have led to my eating disorder and it's just great to have those reminders sometimes, especially when I'm like a little bit further in, into my recovery. So let's dive into the book. Um, you d divide it into four parts. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can kind of share some of the key takeaways from each part. So in my first section, I really like to be able to talk about um, when we're spending time with people, because I think we don't realize that oftentimes tutors could spend more time with a person versus a family member, or if you're a babysitter or a nanny, or even hanging out at like a after school program. And I think it's really being able to listen to the words and phrases that people use. Not that you have to quote unquote be their therapist, but really understanding maybe you're the only person they've ever felt safe with and they want to disclose things to you. So 
I really like to have individuals just sort of like, okay, how much time are you spending around people? And to take a look at how you respond to, to those folks. So, you know, in the first section, I like to get into that and then be able to, and you mentioned earlier, debunk the myths about BMI, um, other useful resources that as a clinician, we like to use to be able to assess where a person's at. Because at the end of the day, Jade, the quote unquote title, whether it's binge eating disorder or RFED or any of these diagnoses, it's really about, I hate to say it, insurance. And a person could have one diagnosis and it could morph into another, or they could have multiple, or they're simultaneously going through several. But I think the title is less important than how they are getting support to work through all these different compartments that are really shaping the way they perceive food choices in their body. So the first section I like to get get into that. In my second section, I'm as I was talking about like debunking the myths of BMI and really looking at other um, important measures, as a registered dietitian, I think it's super important. I've had many colleagues incorporate this into their practice and work is what types of screening questions are they using, you know, pertaining to their current and past health, um, you know, current and past weight history, eating patterns, um, you know, current and past treatment history, and also their goals, not their family's goals, not their doctor's goals, but their goals, because they live in their body. And I mean, I think understanding what your short-term goals are and your long-term goals are. And then every organ, how every body part is affected. This is a big one because people perceive like if they're functioning and they feel fine, nothing's wrong. Not realizing, wow, I'm actually winded walking from my car to the market, or I'm lightheaded bending down, tying my shoe, or I was sitting in the shower because my legs were shaking and I'm seeing flashing, like understanding what is going on with all these body parts. So that's, I think, super important. My third section debunks the myths about carbohydrates, proteins, fats, and water, and explains why it's necessary to have all of these macronutrients in our diet and how our society is either telling us to have too much or not enough of them or remove them and all the confusion out there pertaining to that. And, and then my fourth section, which certainly could be longer, but I had to get it in there, was between um, our team and just on the road to recovery, having compassion, understanding, and self-care and love for yourself, and really looking at what that looks like. And I always like to say, because this is not discussed enough, how your family is a part of the treatment team. They are the forgotten team members. It could be your chosen family. It could be your birth family. But the person that you live with or you're in a relationship with or that's a part of your life is a part of the team. Those are my the highlights of each section. 
Yeah, that's great. I I agree. Yeah, you, recovery is not something that's done on your own. It's definitely done with a team made up of your family, your providers, yourself, friends. Um, so I love that the that's how you end the book. I feel like people with eating disorders, we struggle so much with self-compassion. And so I think it's great that you, you touch on that in the book. Uh, I also love that you um, talk about the effects of the eating disorder on different parts of the body and like on the different organs. I don't think we talk about that enough and, and realize how damaging this illness can be to the body. And also the BMI, like one of the major measures that like insurance companies use, it's so empowering to like learn about how that was actually made and how it's not actually representative of health and yes again so much you just put so much information in this book and it's so great because you use simple language that anyone can understand um so thank you for that um thank you well i wanted yeah. to just say in regard i can respond jade on the bmi piece is like I wish more and more physicians' offices would just throw it out the window and be able to assess like, what's going on with your mental well-being. How's your sleep? How how's your nutrition? How's your like asking these questions? And few offices I work with do, but I would say the majority of them still rely on that. And it's this archaic, vintage, outdated measurement developed for groups of men in the 19th century by this Belgian statistician. It's a mathematical equation, so it's not even relevant to a person or a female or a non-binary. It's like just utterly, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, but I'll just say it's inappropriate. <laughs> yes, no, I I agree. I My most recent round of eating disorder recovery, we like did a deep dive on the BMI and it it's like, it's just so frustrating <laughs> that we've gotten to a place where it's put on this pedestal. And um, yeah, I, I think I want to talk a little bit about like insurance, because I personally have gone through so many instances of like insurance being like, hey, we think you're fine. You don't need treatment anymore. Let's leave. Can you talk about like why there is such a kind of like mismatch when it comes to um, people getting needing the treatment, but insurance kind of being a barrier there? We need another episode, Jade. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Insurance, these utilization reviews. Where do I begin? I think part of the problem is for many years and maybe to this day and age too, they don't have appropriately trained clinicians reviewing each case. I think that's like the big issue. You know, the other thing is they're just looking at, it's like, I would say your, your resume, what's on paper. They're not able to see, like, it doesn't matter if a person's weight restored. They could be having co-occurring thoughts like, okay, each time I'm sitting with my family to eat, I have the tendency to restrict and I'm 
sticking with a safe needle versus when I'm with my best friend, I can challenge myself and be able to have the quesadilla and the queso and chips where it's like, they're looking at just the facts. And I think a lot of this too, Jade, I hate to say it is like money, moolah. It's like so wrong. And it would be amazing, honestly, like the way I'd said in the beginning of my book, if like this book was required for every med student, like I've done in services at, you know, residencies and medical groups this afternoon, doing one for a psychotherapy group, but there's so much ignorance. And it's like, even if they had a training then where there's like, boom, we have a trained eating disorder therapist who's doing the case reviews, a therapist, a dietitian, not just one, but multiple. I mean, and they probably, if they had that, would have a deficit because there wouldn't be enough. Like we have a deficit of eating disorder doctors in LA. Like we all refer to the same handful of doctors. So I think that's one of the big issues. And I think honestly, Jade, like insurance carriers just want to get away with what they can. I mean, I, I know a number of families that I've developed relationships with over the pandemic that have lost their children, sort of adult children that have died from disorders. And they have a whole thing with the insurance companies. And I'm sure there's like a dark side I'm not even aware of. This is just my assessment. But it's it's really, and going down a whole other path, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, is like, you know, it, it really should be affordable for all, not just people that have means. Because I would say, I, if not all, but most like, you know, the clients I see, it's like, they're able to afford it. But I know many people that are not. And it's it's really a shame. It really shouldn't be segregated. Yeah, I agree. I, I've been so privileged to be able to have family that can help me afford care and I've loved that recently I've been working with the organization Project Heal and they do so much work to make treatment more accessible but in working with them I've just come to realize how inaccessible eating disorder treatment is right now and yeah, it should be affordable for all. And it's frustrating that it's not, and it's frustrating that insurance companies and just society in general don't see the weight of how dangerous these illnesses can be. I've always had like a dream <laughs> of like writing a letter or some type of paper and getting a bunch of signatures on it to insurance companies to like change the way that they handle eating disorder cases or even just cases of like mental health care in general um but like I haven't even known where to start like I get pretty overwhelmed when I like start doing research and stuff because it feels like there's so much work to do you know well I'll just say this Jade before the pandemic I went with the eating disorder coalition and lobbied on Capitol Hill for Eating Disorder Advocacy Day. I think that's the place to start. And it was an amazing experience, very intense and draining. 
to be able to lobby to, okay, I'm the California constituent and I'm going to Representative Ted Luz went to, um, actually it was right before Kamala Harris was elected, but we had meetings in all these, you know, Diane Feinstein, all these folks' office. It was like amazing. And I still get the emails from their offices, like, because like the Medicare population is the largest growing population to have an eating disorder. And it's like, you feel like, okay, I'm making a difference and they're listening to you and they want to listen to you and their staff is because you're taking the time to go up there. It was literally like a 24 hour experience, but yeah, I mean, it's cool, but it's like saying, how much time do I have to, to do this as well? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've been trying to like find the balance of my advocacy work and just trying to do not do too much because uh, it it does get a little bit draining um but yeah just trying to find that balance but I think that's I'm glad you said that because that's such a good idea to like start going to those types of events and participating in that way so last two questions um so about the eating disorder trap as you were writing it who kind of who were you in your head who was this book for Initially, it was written for what healthcare providers lack in their training to be able to diagnose and support someone with an eating disorder. But then I was like, well, I want the loved ones. I need other providers. It could be a physician assistant, a nurse. I really wanted to have something because I've spent so many years being frustrated, Jade. Like when I have calls and conversations with physicians that I work with, and they're liking the work I'm doing with their patient. And then it's just like, they're telling me then after like how to do my job and like why they put their patient on this liquid diet and whatnot. And so I was like, okay, I need to do something now. If I'm not going to do it now, because my book came out right before the pandemic, March 30th, 2019. <laughs> That's when it came out. So I thought this, this is it. And yeah, so it's really been helpful to get my word out. I self-published. I saved five years to do it. And I was like, I want to make a difference in the field. I'm putting my mark for when I'm not practicing. And yeah, so that was who it was for. Great. And I loved how that kind of evolved for you. That's really cool. Um, okay, so last question. This is my signature question of the season. Um, I want to put an emphasis on self-care to my audience. So my question for you is, what is one thing you do to maintain mental wellness? Well, my self-care, Jade, it's going to sound crazy to you, but it's somewhere between 5 and 6 a.m., every day. <laughs> it's quiet. It's dark. I like to do something. So this morning, and you can see maybe my goggle eyes, I swam. I, I let, you know, my doggies are sleeping. My husband is sleeping. I like to stretch and meditate. I just like the house is quiet. It's my time because I start work early and I have very long full days and I feel like just doing something for me that I like. That's and 
Yes. I was like, today I'm swimming and then I'm getting my reward as I'm sitting in the jacuzzi. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's just how I roll because I know that I'm giving 150% of me all day long to many people and putting out many fires all day. So I feel like I have to do it then or it won't happen. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Taking time for yourself is so important, especially in, with this type of work. Yeah. Um, and swimming. Oh my goodness. I love swimming. That's one of my favorite like movement activities. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of them that I like, but I think especially with sitting so many hours a day, it's nice to find something that makes my back tighten up less, you know, looking at how to preserve the longevity and in, in the older body here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think it was very unique and it'll be great for people to hear. So thank you for being here. Um, I did, I do need to ask, uh, what are some ways that myself and my audience can, uh, stay up to date with you and the work that you do? Thank you. So, um, Instagram. My Instagram is Robin with a Y Goldberg RDN. My Twitter is at Robin RDN. And if you go onto my website, askaboutfood.com, you can type in your email to get my monthly insight, my monthly newsletter. And then also I have a podcast, which you're going to be a guest on called the Eating Disorder Trap Podcast. And now episodes are dropped every other week. And yes, those are the ways that you could find me. I'm pretty active on my social media. All right. Great. Thank you so much. This was so amazing. Thank you, Jade. I enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I want to give a massive thank you to Robin for coming on the show I really enjoyed our conversation, her book, and the way that the information in it is laid out is so unique, so I highly recommend you all check it out. And also, if you would like to stay up to date with Robin's work um, and follow her on social media, her links will be listed in the description of this episode. As always, the Students of Mind team's social medias will also be listed in the description of this episode as well. One more quick thing, we are starting a newsletter. My team and I have been working on it for a few months and the first edition will be released at the end of July. So be sure to go to that description again for a link where you can sign up for the newsletter to get updates about episodes released throughout the month, any mental health holidays that go on through the month, and just to get some mental health content in your inbox. Thank you so much again for listening. I hope you learned something new or resonated with something you heard today, and I will see you next episode. Hi, I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. 
On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.